We're, we're continuing in our series from the Gospel of John today, and we're calling it Messiah. And if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, then that's fine. I just want to catch up a little bit. We're, we're calling it Messiah because to believe that Jesus is the Messiah is to say that he was the promised one. He was the complete fulfillment of all that the Old Testament scriptures had been pointing to. He was the the, the answer to every pledge that God had made to his people, he was what, he was the point. He was it. Jesus was and is the Messiah. And so as we call this series Messiah, we're speaking about our understanding of Jesus as being the one, the one who holds all the answers, the one who, who holds the answers to questions we haven't even thought of yet. He is the Messiah. And John wrote about him in his gospel, and he wrote these words that we've been sharing throughout these weeks from the very, or towards the end of the book anyway, and he, let's read these together, can we? John wrote these, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And so, These things, John says, the stories and the teachings and the signs, the miracles that I have written about, all these things that I've written about were written so that you might begin and continue to believe that Jesus really is the point. He really is the Messiah. And that you would have not just believe that he's the Messiah, but that he's the Son of God, and that as you do, you would have new life, both now and forevermore. And so we've been thinking about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And in this particular section, in these weeks, we've been looking at some encounters that Jesus has been having with people, just like you and just like me. And we've been doing so to learn about Jesus and to learn about the Father through what we learn about Jesus, but also to learn about ourselves as well. And so today we arrive at chapter 9. In John's Gospel, and here again we uh, recognize or we see Jesus first noticing and then extending himself towards someone in need. The trend is continuing. Whatever context, whatever setting Jesus enters into, he seems first of all to notice those who are hurting, those who are in need. He doesn't go to the pretty people. Sorry, all you pretty people. He doesn't go to the wealthy people, to the people who have it all together. He goes first and foremost to the people who are hurting, who are on the outskirts, who are on the, on the outside who have great need. And we've watched him reaching out through these weeks to the woman at the well, to the paralyzed man by the pool, to the hungry crowd, and last week to the, to the uh, uh, woman caught in adultery. And here again we find Jesus now seeing a man, catch this, seeing a man who, who cannot as of yet see him and showing him the power of his gracious touch. So let's stand together, can we? Let me read chapter 9, and I'm going to eventually read this whole chapter, but right now I'm just going to begin by reading verses 1 up to verse 7. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? 
It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. There's one of these songs that I just need to look at some of these words here at some point this morning. So, uh, yes, there it is. Wow, okay. I'll refer to that in just a moment. Can you turn this down just a little bit? Thanks. Well, um, it's interesting to me, and I don't know if you noticed, but it's interesting to me as, as uh, we begin this chapter, that Jesus' disciples saw the blind man by the side of the road with Jesus, and their first inclination was not to help him in some way, but to enter into a theological discussion. Oh, we love our theological discussions, don't we? I, I, uh, I am one who loves my theological discussions. I love conferences. We've talked about the Ignite Conference. Next week, is the Church of the Nazarene is having a big one called M15, Missions 2015. And there'll be Nazarenes coming in from all over North America, in particular, to conference together. John Wesley talked a lot about the, the discipline of holy conferencing, of getting together to talk and think about things. I love conferencing, but if we're not careful, sometimes we can conference ourselves right out of mission. And it seems like that's what the disciples were prone to do. And, and sometimes, not all times by any means, but sometimes we conference when we don't have any idea what else to do. Like, I, I don't know. Let's have a committee meeting. Let's, let's gather the people, uh, name a, a, a minutes taker, a secretary, and let's just talk about it for a little while. And this is what they seem to want to do with Jesus in these moments. Instead of their compassionate hearts just kicking in as they see this man by the side of the road, it's their intellectual reasoning that starts up. Why? Why? And again, like the woman last week caught in adultery, the humanity of this blind man in these moments is largely swept aside largely lost in these moments, he becomes not a blind man with great need, but again, a prop, a a point of discussion for these disciples in this moment. A, A person to not necessarily talk to or with, but instead to talk about. They assumed that for this man to have been blind from birth, something must have gone terribly wrong. This wasn't fair. There had to be a reason. There had to be a cause. Somebody in their minds and in their thinking had done something to make God very, very angry. And this poor man was paying 
the price. And so they asked Jesus that question that is so often on the lips of people in the face of seemingly unjust suffering or pain, the question of why. Some of you maybe in your own circumstances this morning or in recent days have asked Jesus the very same question. As you look at your own life or circumstances of those around you, why? Why did this happen? And in this case, they ask, why? Was it the man's own sin or that of his parents? And as interesting as it is to me that these disciples, like me so often, want to make this a theological discussion, it's even more interesting that Jesus is apparently determined not to allow this this situation to go that direction. Do you see how quickly he responds? The questions of theirs are legitimate. Their concerns are genuine. It, it makes sense at some level why they would ask this particular question in this time. But Jesus refuses to get caught up in the questions. He refuses to get paralyzed by the analysis of this situation. And so often, we either spin our wheels or we just stay stuck in the mud because we're analyzing and assessing and discussing. Instead of delving deeply into this potential cause and instead of trying to think about the cause and effect of our human sin and and human suffering, instead of getting hung up on the why, Jesus quickly moves to the what. Jesus loves to move to the what. In other words, not, not answering the question, not... It wasn't the question of why that was most important to consider as they confronted this man, but the question of what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? The questions of why will always be with us, and especially this question of suffering. And and we could spend a long time talking about this. And, And the potential was that this conversation could have taken up the whole rest of their journey. And the reality is, is that Answers to some of these questions, in particular this one of suffering, are perhaps those that will only and best be answered when we are with Jesus for all of eternity. And he says to us, come on over here. Now it's time for us to sit down and talk about this for a while. But in this time, Jesus says it's not the why, but it's the what. And so, seeming to not feel the need to offer any careful reasoning or precise doctrinal clarity, Jesus simply declares that this man's situation has nothing to do with his sin. It has nothing to do with the sins of his parents, but it has everything to do with God's desire to show his power in the world. It's not that every bad situation It can be defined by what Jesus is saying, but he says, in this case, it's not the man's sin, it's not his parents' sin. This case has been brought about, this man's blindness has been brought about, has happened so that on this day, in his healing, God might show his power and his glory to all the world. And today, in 2015, as we sit here and read this story once again, indeed, the glory of God comes shining through. Perhaps there would be other times for discussion. Jesus seems to say to his disciples, but this wasn't one of them. This, instead, was a time for mission. 
This was a time for action. This was a time for, again, not just talking about God, but for actually touching a life with the gracious and healing power of God. This verse just grabbed hold of me as I read through it. Read this with me. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. Can you just leave that up there for a moment? He goes on in just the very next verse to talk about how he is the light of the world. And it's, it's this line from that song, Oh How I Need You, that we sang this morning. He said, this, the song says, Light, glorious light, I will go where you shine. Break the dawn, crack the skies, make the wave right before me. In your light, I will find all I need. All I need is you. Light, glorious light, I will go where you shine. Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm only here for a short time. Night is coming. The matter is urgent. I'd love to sit around here and talk with you about this. We'll do that at a later time. For now, we have work to do. The one who sent me and sent us has tasks that he has assigned us to do. And we cannot wait around any longer. We have work to do. He's Here's Jesus inviting not only his disciples then, but his disciples for all time. His followers like you and me, inviting us into his mission. To, again, not stand around asking why the world is the way it is these days, but focusing on what it is that God would have us to do about it. What tasks has he assigned you? I mean, the Bible doesn't always talk like this. We've got to capitalize on this verse. What tasks has he put before you? As you awaken each moment, as you get ready, as you go off to work or to school, what tasks is he putting before you? We're not talking about dropping it all and going to Ethiopia necessarily. We're not talking about answering a call to the international mission field, but we are talking about the daily, moment by moment, right in front of me tasks that God has assigned for me. What tasks has he given you within your own family? What tasks has he given you within your own neighborhood? What tasks has the one who sent us assigned to us? Can we have ears to hear and eyes to see? Can we awaken every morning thinking about where is that light leading us? I will go where you shine. What if we just woke up every morning saying, Jesus, just shine. Just shine. I'm going to look for your light. I'm going to look for where that spotlight is coming from heaven and I'm going to step right into it and I'm going to believe that in that place where you are shining, where you are at work, that you have something for me to do there. Where there's hurt, where there's need, where there are people with great in great crisis, these are places, these are moments. Where is the light of Christ leading us? We have only so much time. And so I love this because Jesus doesn't, you know, like wave his hands and call down angels from heaven. He doesn't get out the scroll and read a declaration as to why this man should be healed. He doesn't do anything holy at all. He spits in the dirt, people. (laughs) He spits in the dirt and he forms a little mud pie and he 
works it and he rubs it on the man's eyes and he sends him to the pool of Siloam, the pool that means sent. And it's as if he's in this very natural and normal, uh, maybe not normal, natural, earthy type of expression expresses the light of God even to this person and sends him to a pool in which he will be washed and then sent himself. Well, what things are we doing? We're looking perhaps for the, for the fancy. I heard a, I heard a, a, a basketball coach, I, I don't know how many of you watch basketball on TV, but I, I do from time to time. You can ask my wife and daughter, maybe a little bit more from time to time. Um, but one of my favorite parts of watching a basketball game on TV is when they do this little thing where they put the microphones on the coaches and they film them during the timeouts, what they're saying to their team. And, and I'm guessing that the coaches know the cameras are on them, and so they probably hold back a few things and maybe speak to the players in different ways than they maybe normally would. But recently I heard a coach just sitting with his team after they had just made some really terrible plays in a timeout, and he said, do the simple play. Do the simple play. Make the easy pass. Take the easy shot. Quit trying to do the spectacular, in other words. Quit trying to make the highlight reel for SportsCenter later on tonight. Quit trying to make yourself stand out and get notoriety and instead just make the simple, easy play. And when I think about the tasks that have been assigned to us, Jesus models to us, it's right here. I've got mud. I've got spit. I'm going to put it on the man's eyes. I'm going to send him off and I'm going to see what God does. And in fact, he goes and washes and comes back seeing. Let's pick up the story right there, can we? I'm going to be in verse 8. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the same one. It really is me. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath. That's right. (laughs) It's when Jesus does his best work. I'm telling you. Trying, who knows what he's doing with this, but it got him to the Pharisees. It was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. Oh, he made the mud. He worked. He worked on the Sabbath by making the mud. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. A little bit of a more muted expression of what had happened. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. 
They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he is old enough, ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God, told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they cursed him and said, you're his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. That's how we deal with things. If we don't like it, we just toss you out. (laughs) I'm just thinking about this man. He'd been blind from birth, on the side of the road, begging. Finally, has somebody rub some mud on his eyes and sends him to the pool, and he comes back, and he can see. The man is gone, but he can see, and he's looking around for his people. Let's have a party. I can see. I haven't been able to see my whole life. That's what you look like, huh? (laughs) This is what the scenery is of this dusty town. I hadn't quite imagined. And expecting there to be those that would gather around him, his neighbors and his friends and his family, and say, that's right, isn't it great? You can see, it's so wonderful. And none of that happens. None of that happens for this man in this scene. Sadly, what the man first saw once his blind eyes were open was not a beautiful sunrise or vista or uh, even a dusty street or his friends and family coming around him to celebrate with him. Instead, now the roles were reversed. It was now the blind man who could see very clearly and it was everybody around him who was suddenly blinded. It was his neighbors and others who knew him. Blinded by their own disbelief. Actually doubting if it was really him. Yeah, that's him. No, that's not him. Yeah, it's really me. No, it's not. And there's division as to whether or not this man was actually him. If he had really been changed, they apparently didn't believe that somebody could change like he had been changed. Blinded by their own disbelief. It doesn't say that these people were necessarily bad or that they were sinful or evil by any means. They were just blinded by this lack of faith, by this disbelief. And I 
began to wonder how many neighbors and friends there are within the walls of churches gathered today who believe but maybe don't really believe in the transformational power of God at work in the lives of human people. Can we really believe that people who used to lie and steal and cheat and you name it can actually be turned into people who love God with their whole heart and love their neighbors as themselves? Or are we blinded by our disbelief? And I think about folks who are outside the walls of God's church perhaps today who are not necessarily bad folks who are going along through their lives doing Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, just this comes and then that comes. Not necessarily blinded by evil, but simply blinded by disbelief. It hasn't grabbed hold of them quite yet. Blinded by our disbelief. Then it was the man's parents who were blinded by their own fear of being persecuted. Thrown out not only of the synagogue, but thrown out literally of the way of life socially that they would have known in that day to be excommunicated or thrown out of the synagogue would mean to be removed from the way of living in that day. Removed from their friends, from their their, uh, religion, from their leaders. Parents blinded by their fear, failing to stand up for him, failing to speak in support of him, much less to celebrate with him. How would it feel, and some of you know exactly how it would feel, to have your parents just completely drop the ball? Yeah, that's our son. Yeah, we know he was blind. But that's all I can say at this moment, because not because I don't know. Surely they would have known but because I need to cover myself. Imagine the heights of anticipation, perhaps, that the man would have felt as he heard, perhaps, that his parents were going to be interviewed. Yes, they'll say it, right? They'll make it clear. Right, they've got me covered. Only to be met with such depths of disappointment as instead they um, drop the ball. Of course, the man who had been blind now also had to deal with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, blinded by their own arrogance. Legalistic and afraid of losing control, they were threatened by this Sabbath-breaker Jesus, but they were even more threatened by His apparent power to heal. Digging in their heels, John's account is, is really humorous. It would be even more funny if it weren't so tragic as to the interaction between the man once blind and these religious leaders, about how they refused to acknowledge their own pride and sin and instead continued to accuse Jesus and the man, even in the face of this miraculous healing that had taken place. Till finally, when they just can't take it any longer, again, instead of facing truth and coming to grips with reality, they kick the man out of the synagogue. Sometimes it's, easier to just turn our eyes away from the truth than to deal with it straight on. The man, though, who had been blind and was now surrounded by people newly blind, (laughs) continues to see clearly. He He is such an example to us. What a role model for us in faith. 
One of the things that commentators have said about this particular man is that he always told the truth. And, and they point to how just telling the truth about what we have seen and heard and experienced of Jesus is always a good move. It's always a right move. And all he does over and over in this passage is just tell the truth. When told by the religious leaders to give God glory instead of Jesus, because Jesus was obviously a sinner, the man gives perhaps the greatest answer and one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture, the greatest answer any follower of Jesus could ever give when confronted with a question like this. Read it with me. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. There's lots I don't know, this man was saying, and I affirm with him personally. There's lots I don't know about Jesus. There's lots I don't understand about who he was and is and how he's always at work in the world. But there's one thing I'm just completely certain of. I was blind, but now I see. Scripture, reason, tradition, how important they all are, and three parts of what has become known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But on the top of that quadrilateral is one that we always make room for, and that's human experience. Not only what we've read and what has been taught about it and what we understand it to mean, but how we've experienced Jesus. What's he done for us? Do we have a testimony like this man? Are we able to say, I don't know for sure, but this is what I know for certain. I was blind, but now I see. There's a story that's actually told of the Wesleyan revival. An English miner, the Wesleys used to go out and preach in the the fields to these miners and workers, and one whose life had been greatly changed. And so it was so greatly changed that some of his co-workers chided him all the time, just gave him such a hard time about his new faith. And one day they asked him at lunchtime, you don't really believe that Jesus turned water into wine, do you? And the man replied in a way that is much like the man of our story. I don't really know if Jesus actually changed water into wine. I wasn't there. But I do know one thing. In my house, Jesus changed beer into furniture. There was a a new change. A new, instead of What was, Jesus had brought something new into his life. And the tangible effects of that were beautifully present before him. Well, let's look at the last passage, 35 to 41. And let's finish the chapter. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man. What had happened? He'd been thrown out of the synagogue. Ostracized. Rejected. Completely alone. He found the man and asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said. And he worshipped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. 
but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Again, Jesus finds the man. He had found him, remember, by the side of the road when he was blind. Now he finds him again by the side of some road somewhere, having been kicked out of the synagogue, ignored by his friends, ostracized by his family most likely as well. Again, Jesus sees the person. It's like x-ray Jesus vision, the person who is in greatest need. That's the one that Jesus sees, and he speaks to him. Again, this is the first time the man had heard his voice since he told him to go wash in the pool, and it was the, the voice that must have triggered something in the man's mind. He had never yet seen Jesus' face, but as he heard the voice and looked into his face, something was different. That voice, that face... He had called Jesus early on in the passage a man. Then he called him a prophet. Now he calls him Lord. And he bows down. And he worships him. The last few verses of this lengthy story challenge us to apply it to our own lives. Will we be like the man, blind from birth, deeply aware of our own spiritual blindness, Deeply aware of our need for God's healing touch. Deeply aware that in our own strength we are powerless to change our own lives and to find meaning and life. If so, we are the perfect patience for Jesus. Today's October 1. That means I have finished my January session of past... Or I'm sorry, what did I say? October, sorry. Today's February 1. I'm jumping ahead about eight months. I scared some of you people. Two months till Christmas. Um, today's February, today's February 1, and that means I have, I've completed my January round of pastoral check-ins. There are still a few of you ha- who have extended that, and that's perfectly fine. I'm looking forward to the February round as well. But uh, it has been a, a wonderful experience for me once again. Thank you to those of you who were able to come in and just hang out, check in, talk about life, see where God's at work. It's been a lot of fun. And I have to say that while it's been draining for me, it's been rewarding to know how God is, is moving and stirring in the hearts of his people. And with every seemingly drain, it's been replenished in my soul as I have been affirmed and encouraged by the work of the Spirit in your lives. And as I met with one person, especially this past week, there was a sense as we were talking that there was a, just a spirit of real humility and contrition and repentance about some of the things that have been a part of their life. And I, I just thought, this is it. We've hit on something here, friends. When we move into this place of humility, when we move into this place of contrition, when we move into this place of repentance, of saying, of not saying with the religious leaders, I know, I know, I know. But instead saying, I don't know for sure, but I know that Jesus can work in me. Then I told the, the person, I said, you have moved into a place where God can do his greatest work. It's with hearts that say, I know, I've got it figured out. Anytime you hear yourself saying, I know, I know, I know. No, you don't. It's the first indicator in our spiritual lives that we've got storms brewing. No, you don't. But when I 
find myself in a place of humility, of contrition? Are we in a place of repentance? Are we in a place where we recognize that without the the work of Jesus, without the blood of Jesus, we have no shot? Then we're moving exactly to the place where God can do his greatest work. And that's our invitation today. Let's pray together, can we? God, thanks that uh, with this man you did uh, an amazing thing. God, thanks that you have worked in our hearts and are working in our hearts to make us new. Some of us have experienced that, that sense of blindness, that we've all been away from you, and, and you have brought many to new relationship, new life. May we be sure of that one thing as we humble ourselves before you. And even this morning, as we come to your table, as we receive of bread and juice, may we recognize the depth of our need and your great grace and love and willingness to feed us with yourself. We love you and we worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.